Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good, glorious morning uh, from the beautiful Badlands of North Dakota to you and yours on this April 14th, 2020. Welcome to Teddy Talks. I'm Joe Wiegand, and I'm coming to you from Medora, the wonderful gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, located at the uh, confluence of the Little Missouri River and the Northern Pacific Railroad, on which Theodore Roosevelt traveled in 1883, staked his claim as a cattle rancher. He said, it's where the romance of my life began. Today, a special program uh, remarks in Teddy's own words, hence Teddy Talks, at the dedication of the new house office building in Washington, D.C. in 1906. It had not been uh, named or dedicated. It would later be uh, done so for uh, Speaker Joe Cannon of Danville, Illinois, a, a man with whom Theodore Roosevelt grappled and was able to wrestle out quite a bit of uh, good policy uh, during the Cannon administration as Speaker of the House of Representatives. Welcome uh, to all of our family and friends from throughout the country. Uh, my heart uh, heavy today for some uh, serving in the United States Navy, those that are most at risk and, and having the challenge now of dealing with this uh, COVID virus. We lost in uh, the last uh, day or so one of the sailors aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, the Navy calls that nuclear aircraft carrier the Big Stick. And there are nearly 5,000 Navy and Marine Corps personnel that serve aboard her. The ship is now in Guam, uh, as are many of the, uh, the sailors are transported from the ship to a uh, hospital and otherwise located on the island of Guam. The sailor who died has not yet been identified. 584 other uh, personnel aboard that ship have been diagnosed with the virus. So uh, we keep all of them in our thoughts and prayers and most especially the family of the sailor uh, who has died. Another sailor who lived a long life and who uh, uh, served for nearly four decades in the United States Navy, uh, the late Rear Admiral Tom Paulson. Uh, today is Admiral Paulson's birthday. Uh, had he been with us, uh, we would have been celebrating his 84th birthday this April 14th. Rear Admiral Paulson was born in Watford City, 
North Dakota and would graduate from the United States Naval Academy in 1916, receiving his commission for the submarine service amongst the, uh, the submarines on which the Admiral served. Uh, the uh, USS Corporal served as uh, uh, executive officer on the USS Sailfish and in between uh, five years of duty on the USS Theodore Roosevelt uh, prior to the Big Stick being a, uh, an aircraft carrier and dedicated nearly 30 years ago uh, in that neighborhood. The SBN 600, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, uh, was our George Washington class nuclear submarine and uh, its sponsor was Alice Roosevelt Longwell. And so I look forward to hearing from uh, the Admiral's family about the possibility that uh, uh, the, uh, the Admiral is a young officer in the United States Navy serving on board the submarine the USS Theodore Roosevelt may have met uh, the President's daughter, Alice. Uh, the Admiral would uh, serve then on surface ships, serve uh, as a commanding officer of, uh, of various of those uh, surface ships, including uh, his last, the USS Blue Ridge, serving with the 7th Fleet in the 1980s. The uh, Admiral would return to his uh, alma mater, the United States Naval Academy, and teach and uh, serve there, and, and eventually serve in both the Atlantic and Pacific fleets, and would conclude his career uh, in Washington, D.C. as the uh, Deputy Chief of Naval Education and Training and to his wife of uh, 50 nine years, uh, Marbeth, and to his uh, daughters, Carrie, Kendall, Catherine, and to, their, uh, uh, to their entire family. Our thoughts and prayers with you. The Admiral uh, died at the end of March and is remembered by all of those in North Dakota. And I'm delighted to have met the Admiral and his family here in beloved Medora. On this date in Theodore Roosevelt history, or uh, the history of those that are associated uh, associated with the life and legacy of Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, of course, on this date in uh, 1866, the birth of Anne Sullivan. She a graduate of Perkins School for the Blind. She's the uh, student and teacher who became famous for becoming Helen Keller's teacher and companion. Anne Sullivan and Helen Keller, uh, Helen Keller then a young college student uh, they visited the White House and visited with uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, was thankful for Helen Keller's book uh, provided uh, to the president on that visit. On this date in uh, 1890 in Washington, D.C., the first International Conference of American States. Uh, this would uh, go on to eventually be the uh, uh, Pan American Union, uh, whose headquarters are in Washington, D.C., on this date in 1925, uh, uh, the uh, death of the artist John Singer Sargent, famous portraitist, and uh, amongst his portraits, this is the best representation I have. Uh, it's the uh, book cover from the late Edmund Morris's uh, Theodore Rex, the painting that John Singer Sargent uh, painted of uh, President Roosevelt was one done after some time being at the White House and sketching and witnessing Roosevelt and following him around the White House. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt's patience was uh, becoming short and he's about to uh, head up some stairs and uh, he uh, turns around and, and puts his uh, hand on the newel post, uh, the uh, end of the railing coming down the stairs. And, 
uh, hand, left hand on his hip and right hand on the uh, top of the newel post. He says, how's this? And uh, this uh, uh, sort of squinting uh, eagle claw on the uh, newel post is a famous image of Theodore Roosevelt, and, and that painted by the artist John Singer Sargent. And uh, Singer's, John Singer Sargent also did President Wilson's official White House portrait. And finally, on this date in history, uh, she born in 1907, but the death occurred on this date in 1964. I didn't realize that uh, the biologist and author Rachel Carson, uh, the uh, author of Silent Spring, died on this date in 1964. Um, uh, direct connections to Theodore Roosevelt? Perhaps not. But part of what has fascinated me about the character of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, the impression and impact he made on American society, if you lived during his time, but even if you were born in the aughts or the teens, uh, Theodore Roosevelt dying in 1919, early in that year, perhaps the memories of his policies and of the elections is remote. But the legacy of what he did to the country, I think, was not remote. If you were born in the aughts, the teens, if your childhood was in the time of Theodore Roosevelt, and this great big child was your president, if and the life that he lived uh, for the decade after his presidency was so well covered in the stories told. And again, back out on the campaign trail and touring the country during the war, I think Theodore Roosevelt still resonated within you. And, and uh, I'll look forward to reading more about Rachel Carson and seeing if she had anything to write about Theodore Roosevelt in the early efforts in the cause of conservation. Uh, before I read today's remarks from April 14th, 1906, in Washington, D.C., uh, a look ahead to some of the future programs. Those of you uh, who love history and its dates obviously know that by skipping over April 14th on this date, two uh, significant uh, occurrences uh, that I am uh, promising to, uh, to uh, address them tomorrow on April 15th. On April 14th, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd Lincoln went to Ford's Theater to see the play uh, my American Cousin. And it was on the evening of the 14th that Abraham Lincoln was shot, and on the early morning hours of April 15th that President Lincoln, the great emancipator, the rail splitter from Illinois, uh, succumbed to his wounds and died on April 15, 1865. The same with the sinking of the Titanic. Uh, the Titanic hit the iceberg uh, in the North Atlantic, uh, uh, late in the evening, just shortly before midnight on the 14th, and then uh, sank on the, uh, the morning of the 15th of April. So uh, amongst those uh, killed in the sinking, the uh, presidential aide uh, for both Theodore Roosevelt and for William Howard Taft, Major Archibald Butt uh, of Augusta, Georgia, and he a graduate of the University of the South, uh, his writings, uh, the intimate letters of Archie Butt, military aide, uh, letters uh, he wrote to his family that contained a great deal of background about uh, upstairs and downstairs uh, at the White House and, and the comings and goings of Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. Um, we'll remember uh, tomorrow Abraham Lincoln and uh, Major Archibald Butt and all uh, who, uh, who perished in the sinking of the Titanic. Uh, but tomorrow then, April 15th, a message to the school children of the United States in celebration of Arbor Day. Those remarks made by the president April 15th, 1907. And uh, 
Uh, uh, then on uh, Thursday, April 16th, Presidential Proclamation Number 804, uh, signed by Theodore Roosevelt on April 16th, 1908, establishing the Natural Bridges National Monument, uh, Utah's first national monument. And uh, uh, continuing on uh, through the end of the week, uh, we'll on uh, on Saturday we'll have uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the Great San Francisco Earthquake. And uh, I'm certain we'll have a program on, on Friday, uh, April 17th. Back to April 14th, 1906. The laying of the cornerstone of the new house office building in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, the building later to be known as the Cannon House Office Building. Over a century ago, Washington laid the cornerstone of the Capitol in what was then little more than a tract of wooded wilderness here beside the Potomac. We now find it necessary to provide by great additional buildings for the business of the government. This growth in the need for the housing of the government is but a proof and example of the way in which the nation has grown and the sphere of action of the national government has grown. We now administer the affairs of a nation in which the extraordinary growth of population has been outstripped by the growth of wealth and the growth in complex interests. The material problems that face us today are not such as they were in Washington's time, but the underlying facts of human nature are the same now as they were then. Under altered external form, we war with the same tendencies toward evil that were evident in Washington's time and are helped by the same tendencies for good. It is about some of these that I wish to say a word today. In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you may recall the description of the man with the muckrake, the man who could look no way but downward with the muckrake in his hand, who was offered a celestial crown for his muckrake but who would neither look up nor regard the crown he was offered, but continued to rake to himself the filth of the floor. In Pilgrim's Progress, the man with the muckrake is set forth as the example of him whose vision is fixed on carnal instead of on spiritual things. Yet he also typifies the man who in this life consistently refuses to see aught that is lofty and fixes his eyes with solemn intentness only on that which is vile and debasing. Now it is a very necessary uh, that we should not flinch from seeing what is vile and debasing. There is filth on the floor, and it must be scraped up with the muckrake, and there are times and places where this service is the most needed of all the services that can be performed. But the man who never does anything else who never thinks or speaks or writes, save of his feats with the muckrake, speedily becomes not a help to society, not an incitement to good, but one of the most potent forces for evil. There are in the body politic, economic and social, many and grave evils, and there is urgent necessity for the sternest war upon them. There should be relentless exposure of and attack upon every evil man, whether politician or businessman, 
every evil practice, whether in politics, in business, or in social life, I hail as a benefactor every writer or speaker, every man who, on the platform, or in book, magazine, or newspaper, with merciless severity, makes such attack, provided always that he in his turn remembers that the attack is of use only if it is absolutely truthful. The liar is no whit better than the thief, and if his mendacity takes the form of slander, he may be worse than most thieves. It puts a premium upon knavery untruthfully to attack an honest man, or even with hysterical exaggeration to assail a bad man with untruth. An epidemic of indiscriminate assault upon character does not good, but very great harm. The soul of every scoundrel is gladdened whenever an honest man is assailed, or even when a scoundrel is untruthfully assailed. Now it is easy to twist out of shape what I have just said, easy to affect to misunderstand it, and if it is slurred over in repetition, not difficult, really, to misunderstand it. Some persons are sincerely incapable of understanding that to denounce mudslinging does not mean the endorsement of whitewashing, and both the interested individuals who need whitewashing and those others who practice mudslinging like to encourage such confusion of ideas. One of the chief counts against those who make indiscriminate assault upon men in business or men in public life is that they invite a reaction which is sure to tell powerfully in favor of the unscrupulous scoundrel who really ought to be attacked, who ought to be exposed, who ought, if possible, to be put in the penitentiary. If Aristides is praised overmuch as just, people get tired of hearing it. And over-censure of the unjust, finally, and from similar reasons, results in their favor. Any excess is almost sure to invite a reaction. And unfortunately, the reaction, instead of taking the form of punishment of those guilty of the excess, is very apt to take the form either of punishment of the unoffending, or of giving immunity and even strength to offenders. The effort to make financial or political profit out of the destruction of character can only result in public calamity. Gross and reckless assaults on character, whether on the stump or in newspaper, magazine, or book, create a morbid and vicious public sentiment, and at the same time act as a profound deterrent to able men of normal sensitiveness and tend to prevent them from entering the public service at any price. As an instance in point, I may mention that one serious difficulty encountered in getting the right type of men to dig the Panama Canal is the certainty that they will be exposed, both without, and I am sorry to say sometimes within, Congress, to utterly reckless assaults on their character and capacity. At the risk of repetition, let me say again, that my plea is not for immunity uh, to but for the most unsparing exposure of the politician who betrays his trust, of the big businessman who makes or spends his fortune in illegitimate or corrupt ways. There should be a resolute effort to hunt every such man out of the position he has disgraced, expose the crime and hunt down the criminal. But remember that even in the case of crime, 
if it is attacked in sensational, lurid, and untruthful fashion, the attack may do more damage to the public mind than the crime itself. It is because I feel that there should be no rest in the endless war against the forces of evil that I ask that the war be conducted with sanity as well as with resolution. The men with the muckrakes are often indispensable to the well-being of society, but only if they know when to stop raking the muck, to look upward to the celestial crown above them, to the crown of worthy endeavor. There are beautiful things above and round about them, and if they gradually grow to feel that the whole world is nothing but muck, their power of usefulness is gone. If the whole picture is painted black, there remains no hue whereby to single out the rascals for distinction from their fellows. Such painting finally induces a kind of moral colorblindness, and people affected by it come to the conclusion that no man is really black and no man really white, but they are all gray. In other words, they neither believe in the truth of the attacked nor in the honesty of the man who is attacked. They grow as suspicious of the accusation as of the offense. It becomes well-nigh hopeless to stir them either to wrath against wrongdoing or to enthusiasm for what is right. And such a mental attitude in the public gives hope to every knave and is the despair of honest men. To assail the great and admitted evils of our political and industrial life with such crude and sweeping generalizations as to include decent men in the general condemnations means the searing of the public conscience. There results a general attitude either of cynical belief in and indifference to public corruption, or else of a distrustful inability to discriminate between the good and the bad. Either attitude is fraught with untold damage to the country as a whole. The fool who has not sense to discriminate between what is good and what is bad is well nigh as dangerous as the man who does discriminate and yet chooses the bad. There is nothing more distressing to every good patriot, to every good American, than the hard, scoffing spirit which treats the allegation of dishonesty in a public man as a cause for laughter. Such laughter is worse than the crackling of thorns under a pot, for it denotes not merely the vacant mind, but the heart in which high emotions have been choked before they can grow to fruition. There is any amount of good in the world, and there never was a time when loftier and more disinterested work for the betterment of mankind was being done than now. The forces that tend for evil are great and terrible, but the forces of truth and love and courage and honesty and generosity and sympathy are also stronger than ever before. It is a foolish and timid, no less than a wicked thing, to blink the fact that the forces of the evil are strong. But it is even worse to fail to take into account the strength of the forces that tell for good. Hysterical sensationalism is the very poorest weapon wherewith to fight for lasting righteousness. The men who with stern sobriety and truth assail the many evils of our time, whether in the public press or in magazines or in books, are the leaders and allies of all engaged in the work for social and political betterment. But if they give good reason for distrust of what they say, if they chill the ardor of those who demand truth as a primary virtue, they thereby betray the good cause. 
play into the hands of the very men against whom they are nominally at war. In his ecclesiastical polity, that fine old Elizabethan divine Bishop Hooker right, wrote, He that goeth about to persuade a multitude that they are not so well governed as they ought to be, shall never want attentive and favorable hearers, because they know the manifold defects whereunto every kind of regimen is subject, but the secret lets and difficulties which in public proceedings are innumerable and inevitable, they have not ordinarily the judgment to consider. This truth should be kept constantly in mind by every free people desiring to preserve the sanity and poise indispensable to the permanent success of self-government. Yet, on the other hand, it is vital not to permit this spirit of sanity and self-command to degenerate into mere mental stagnation. Bad though a state of hysterical excitement is, and evil though the results are which come from the violent oscillations such excitement invariably produces, yet a sodden acquiescence in evil is even worse. At this moment we are passing through a period of great unrest, social, political, and industrial unrest. It is of the utmost importance for our future that this should prove to be not the unrest of mere rebelliousness against life, of mere dissatisfaction with the inevitable inequality of conditions, but the unrest of a resolute and eager ambition to secure the betterment of the individual and the nation. So far as this movement of agitation throughout the country takes the form of a fierce discontent with evil, of a determination to punish the authors of evil, whether in industry or politics, the feeling is to be heartily welcomed as a sign of healthy life. If, on the other hand, it turns into a mere crusade of appetite against appetite, of a contest between the brutal greed of the have-nots and the brutal greed of the haves, then it has no significance for good, but only for evil. If it seeks to establish a line of cleavage, not along the line which divides good men from bad, but along that other line, running at, running at right angles thereto, which divides those who are well off from those who are less well off, then it will be fraught with immeasurable harm to the body politic. We can no more and no less afford to condone evil in the man of capital than evil in the man of no capital. The wealthy man who exults because there is a failure of justice in the effort to bring some trust magnate to an account for his misdeeds is as bad as, and no worse than, the so-called labor leader who clamorously strives to excite a foul class feeling on behalf of some other labor leader who is implicated in murder. One attitude is as bad as the other, and no worse. In each case, the accused is entitled to exact justice, and in neither case is there need of action by others which can be construed into an expression of sympathy for crime. It is a prime necessity that if the present unrest is to result in permanent good, the emotion shall be translated into action, and that action shall be marked by honesty, sanity, and self-restraint. There is mighty little good in a mere spasm of reform. The reform that counts is that which comes through steady, 
continuous growth, violent emotionalism leads to exhaustion. It is important to this people to grapple with the problems connected with the amassing of enormous fortunes and the use of those fortunes, both corporate and individual, in business. We should discriminate in the sharpest way between fortunes well won and fortunes ill won, between those gained as an incident to performing great services to the community as a whole, and those gained in evil fashion by keeping just within the limits of mere law honesty. Of course, no amount of charity in spending such fortunes in any way compensates for misconduct in making them. As a matter of personal conviction, without pretending to discuss the details or formulate the system, I feel that we shall ultimately have to consider the adoption of some such scheme as that of a progressive tax on all fortunes beyond a certain amount, either given in life uh, uh, devised or bequeathed upon death to any individual, a tax so framed as to put it out of the power of the owner of one of these enormous fortunes to hand on more than a certain amount to any one individual. The tax, of course, to be imposed by the national, not the state government. Such taxation should, of course, be aimed merely at the inheritance or transmission in their entirety of those fortunes swollen beyond all healthy limits. Again, the national government must, in some form, exercise supervision over corporations engaged in interstate business. All large corporations are engaged in interstate business, whether by license or otherwise, so as to permit us to deal with the far-reaching evils of overcapitalization. This year, we are making a beginning in the direction of serious effort to settle some of these economic problems by the railway rate legislation. Such legislation, if so framed, as I am sure it will be, as to secure definite and tangible results, will amount to something of itself. It will amount to a great deal more insofar as it, has taken, uh, it is taken as a first step in the direction of a policy of superintendence and control over corporate wealth engaged in interstate commerce. This superintendence uh, uh, and control not to be exercised in a spirit of malevolence toward the men who have created the wealth, but with the firm purpose both to do justice to them and to see that they in their turn do justice to the public at large. The first requisite in the public servants who are to deal in this shape with corporations, whether as legislators or as executives, is honesty. This honesty can be no respecter of persons. There can be no such thing as unilateral honesty. The danger is not really from corrupt corporations. It springs from the corruption itself, whether exercised for or against corporations. The Eighth Commandment reads, Thou shalt not steal. It does not read, Thou shalt not steal from the rich man. It does not read, Thou shalt not steal from the poor man. It reads simply and plainly, Thou shalt not steal. No good whatever will come from that warped and mock morality which denounces the misdeeds of men of wealth and forgets the misdeeds practiced at their expense, which denounces bribery but blinds itself to blackmail, which foams with rage if a corporation secures favors by improper methods, and merely leers with hideous mirth if the corporation is itself wrong. The only public servant who can be trusted honestly 
to protect the rights of the public against the misdeed of a corporation is that public man who will just as surely protect the corporation itself from wrongful aggression. If a public man is willing to yield to popular clamor and do wrong to the men of wealth or to rich corporations, it may be set down as certain that if the opportunity comes, he will secretly and furtively do wrong to the public in the interest of a corporation. But in addition to honesty, we need sanity. No honesty will make a public man useful if that man is timid or foolish, if he is a hot-headed zealot or an impracticable visionary. As we strive for reform, we find that it is not at all merely the case of a long uphill pull. On the contrary, there is almost as much of breaching work as of collar work. To depend on only on traces means that there will soon be a runaway and an upset. The men of wealth who today are trying to prevent the regulation and control of their business in the interest of the public by the proper government authorities will not succeed, in my judgment, in checking the progress of the movement. But if they did succeed, they would find that they had sown the wind and would surely reap the whirlwind, for they would ultimately provoke the violent excesses which accompany a reform coming by convulsion instead of by steady and natural growth. On the other hand, the wild preachers of unrest and discontent, the wild agitators against the entire existing order, the men who act crookedly, whether because of sinister design or for mere puzzle-headedness, the men who preach destruction without proposing any substitute for what they intend to destroy, or who propose a substitute which would be far worse than the existing evils, all these men are the most dangerous opponents of real reform. If they get their way, they will lead the people into a deeper pit uh, than into uh, any into which they could fall under the present system. If they fail to get their way, they will still do incalculable harm by provoking the kind of reaction which, in its revolt against the senseless evil of their teaching, would enthrone more securely than ever the very evils which their misguided followers believe they are attacking. More important than aught else, is the development of the broadest sympathy of man for man. The welfare of the wage worker, the welfare of the tiller of the soil, upon these depend the welfare of the entire country. Their good is not to be sought in pulling down others, but their good must be the prime object of all of our statesmanship. Materially, we must strive to secure a broader economic opportunity for all men so that each shall have a better chance to show the stuff of which he is made. Spiritually and ethically, we must strive to bring about clean living and right thinking. We appreciate that the things of the body are important, but we appreciate also that the things of the soul are immeasurably more important. The foundation stone of national life is, and ever must be, the high individual character of the average citizen. A rather longer reading this morning. Thank you all for being here. That's the origin of uh, Theodore Roosevelt's attack on the muck-raking press. Uh, we can revisit that issue and others this week. Send your questions and comments to the comment uh, section on Facebook. Uh, these are posted by my friends at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation uh, at uh, YouTube and Spotify. So if that's a format you might enjoy, please uh, share that with your family and friends. 
and family and friends, uh, we look forward to visiting with you here in Medora. Uh, the summer will come, and we're going to uh, we're going to hike the Pancrats Trail up to Schaefer Point. Uh, bring your uh, children and grandchildren along. I'd love to show them the Prairie Dog Town up at the top of Schaefer Point, and we'll go for a trail ride. Uh, we'll enjoy Point to Point Park, and uh, we're going to have a great bully summer here in Medora, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park destination for you and your family this summer and through the fall. Goodbye. Good luck. See you tomorrow on Teddy Talk.